You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. What is up, everybody out there in podcast land? Welcome to the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Thomas. Just hopping on real quick to do a quick intro before we get into today's topic with Matt Ross of the National Deer Association. Need to run through our sponsors right quick and uh, take care of some business prior to hopping on with Matt. Um, Like I said, the episode with Matt today is centered around his article that he wrote actually back in 2020 labeled the 20 biggest deer research discovery discoveries of the last decade. Some of you might've uh, read this uh, article before it's like I said, almost three years old. It's a terrific article. I've been wanting to talk to Matt for a while about this. We actually go over five of the 20 biggest discoveries um, unfortunately, we don't have five hours to uh, have a show, so we picked our five favorite ones, I guess you'd call it, or the five we wanted to talk to Matt more about the most, and um, we talked to him about it, and that's basically what this show is. I am joined in the show with Andy and our buddy with Habitat Works, Dustin Williams. Dustin was was in studio uh, waiting to record his show with us, so we asked him to hop on and... Um, record with Matt as well. So Dustin's on, uh, has his first crack at, uh, what do you call it? I guess, hosting a podcast. He did a great job. So we appreciate him coming on with us too. Um, let's, uh, pay these bills and do, run through our sponsors real quick. Athlon optics, check them out. I can't wait to get back outdoors in the daytime. I've been doing a lot of night hunting the last, uh, month or two. So ready to run some Athlon stuff here soon. Uh, check them out. Athlonoptics.com. Find a dealer near, near you. Midwest Gunworks. Use our code WOODSWATER. It's a new code now for 5% off any uh, any purchase there. MidwestGunworks.com. Man, they, they pretty much got everything. I just actually uh, was looking at gun-mounted lasers uh, for next thermal season. That's one thing I want to, uh, I think, add to my arsenal. So was on their website the other day looking at that. River's Edge Tree Stands, use our code MISSOURI10 for 10% off plus free shipping uh, on hang-ons and ladder stands. That's a big uh, savings in itself, by the way, just the free shipping. Uh, so check them out. We're going to be doing some major work to a few of our properties this year, and there's going to be some River's Edge Tree Stands popping up in some trees. Lucky Buck, I am going to be dumping some this week, hopefully. Uh, it's about that time. <clears throat> I don't remember if you've heard our episodes on Lucky Buck, but we talk about 
set a, a bucket of it on your lawnmower, and when it's time to mow your lawn, that's when you start dumping your full buckets out. And um, it's a it's a great uh, product in our opinion. We love using it throughout the throughout the year, honestly. And then finally, uh, we got Onyx. I lied. Not finally. Onyx Maps. Use our code MWW20 for 20% off. Get on the uh, App Store, uh, download Onyx Hunt, or pop on their website. And you can, the nice thing is, I kind of haven't really mentioned this before, but you can try it risk free for seven days, which is cool. If you don't like it, cancel it. Um, use our code, save for 20% off also. And then finally, we got Camo Fire and Black Ovis, sister companies, Camo Fire, awesome flash sale. I have the app that's, in my opinion, the only way to use Camo Fire unless you're going to get on a computer. Uh, like I said, I got the app, <clears throat> and I just uh, pop on it, you know, as much as I can and, and check out some of the cool deals. And then Black Ovis is more of an online retailer that pretty much carries anything you can think of as well as uh, custom arrow building. It's called Arrow ID. So check them out, blackovis.com. Use the code MWW10 for 10% off any purchase there. Um, Micah has got some arrows from there. I'm going to order some stuff. Might look at some saddles they sell. So, um, check them out. That is our sponsors for today. We appreciate them. And, uh, like I said, it's a good show with, uh, Matt. It's just getting more into detail about this topic, the 20 biggest deer research discoveries of the last decade. There's a lot of great stuff. I will link the article as well in our show notes. But you should check out the article on DeerAssociation.com and then you can just search 20 Biggest Deer Discoveries or you can honestly just Google it and it'll pop right up. So it's a great uh, article and then you can also read more of the um, studies, I guess you'd call it, within some of those 20 Biggest Discoveries. Um, you know, it's a it's a small portion of what actually happens in that number so um there's a lot more research that goes on to it into it and then you can read those as well so pretty cool if you're a nerd like me when it comes to deer i like reading this stuff and we wanted to talk to matt ross who is a great uh resource with the national deer association if you're not supporting the national deer association we we recommend you do um they they care about deer and they want to keep deer around so that we can continue hunting them for years to come. So anyways, I'll stop talking. Let's get into today's show with Matt Ross. This is the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. Okay, with us tonight, we've got a Missouri Woods and Water first, or maybe we don't, but we have, instead of Mike, Micah, Nate, and Andy, we have... Andy, Nate, and Dustin Williams. You can go ahead and break it to him. Micah, you're we, off the show. We fired Micah. <laughs> he gone. <laughs> we got our buddy Dustin Williams with Habitat Works here today um, filling in. We're actually going to record a show with Dustin later tonight. And he got here early enough because he wanted to talk to Matt Ross with the National Deer Association. Also, Matt, what's going on, man? What's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. Dustin, maybe I should hang out and listen to your talk afterwards to reciprocate. <laughs> you should. Hey, more than welcome. Dude, he is so smart. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a good show with him. We're going to do some, uh, some. Uh, what would you call it, like farm uh, plans? Property, property breakdown and kind yeah. of uh, approach of attack as far as improving habitat on where these guys hunt here close to Kansas City. So Yeah. So we're excited Very about cool. that one, too. So we're going to have a full night of fun topics. 
Um, Because the topic we're going to talk about is, um, I think Micah was actually the one that sent us this to all three of us. I could be wrong. Uh, By the way, folks, Micah is not off the show. It was a joke. No, we voted. Oh, we we voted? We voted. Do you have all three of our votes or something? No, me and Dustin did. Oh, you and Dustin. Mm-hmm. Did you get ownership already? Damn, uh, man. I don't feel like I have a whole lot of gravity here. So. <laughs> delegated, so Delegated authority. The article is actually a few years old that Matt wrote, but it's the 20 biggest deer research discoveries of the last decade. I had seen this back when it first came out and kind of forgot about it, and then mm-hmm. Micah brought it back up to us uh, actually several months ago now, and... It's just a really interesting uh, article that Matt put together. Um, tell us about why you wrote that article and what kind of reception it got when you first wrote it. Well, actually, sure. I guess I should – how about you introduce yourself first Slow down. and tell Slow us down. what you do for the NDA. We're so excited to talk about uh, deer movement stuff that we're jumping right into yeah. it. So, yeah. Um, so I, I'm the director of conservation for NDA. So I, I've been with the company – uh, for coming on 17 years. Uh, it was QDMA when I was first hired, 2006 when I first came on. I've served in a variety of roles over the years, but my current position, um, I oversee uh, our conservation staff that are positioned across the country. Interestingly, we actually have two people on the ground in Missouri. Um, there's a, a northern representative and a southern representative. They split the state. Uh, and uh, we have those employees on the ground in partnership with uh, MDC, Missouri Department of Conservation. Nice. And so we could talk about their roles if, if we have time at one point. But I, there's other people that are similarly employed by us, cost share programs with state agencies, um, some people that actually are full-time employees with us that oversee some of our programs. We have a, a class that people can take. Um it's called Dear Steward. And so I have one individual that oversees that program and others. Uh, and my primary uh, responsibility besides basically administering staff and making sure they're, you know, employing good conservation on the ground for deer hunters, making sure that deer hunting is important. Uh, I oversee a fair amount of our grants um, and our stewardship work with the U.S. Forest Service. We have a public lands initiative uh, that has a goal to improve a million acres of public land by 2026. We're doing that with state wildlife and forestry agencies and primarily the U.S. Forest Service. So working through that takes up a ton of time and making sure that we have contractors on all those places doing, doing that work. But that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, I'm talking to you all from uh, New York State. That's where I live. I've always worked from home the entire time I worked for the organization. Um, and I'm a, I'm a biologist, certified biologist, a wildlife biologist, and a forester, but first and foremost, a deer hunter. And that's why I went to school, uh, just ate up with deer hunting, and it was like, how do I make this into a career? And Heck so yeah. kind of pur- pursued that. And so uh that's kind of the the short and dirty of my background of what i do and how long i've been with the company though that's awesome yeah anytime you can make your your love and your passion a career it's a win right oh absolutely yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean that's kind of why we started the podcast dustin you know is doing habitat work as his as his full-time career now too and it's it makes going to work a lot more fun yeah Uh, you know like we don't even feel like the podcast is quote unquote work but no um because we're, we're getting the chance to talk to guys like you and right. my uncle Lindsay thomas jr uh he's not really my uncle but 
We have the same last name, so. <laughs> um, you know, we've had Lindsay on a few times. We've gotten to talk to some really cool people through this, you know, through this show. And, you know, we love deer. I mean, they're all, that's all yeah. there is to it. So um, articles like the one you wrote, as we can finally pivot into it now. I, I got a little ahead of myself, sorry. Um, the articles like the one you wrote are things that I think go a long way in – learning more about deer how can we keep them you know around for us to be yeah. able to enjoy um despite what you know some people might think uh we we love deer so much that we don't want them all to die <laughs> we only want to you know kill them strategically so that we can enjoy their uh their meat and and other nice things with them but um so what what led you to write that that that's that uh, article back in 20 well well i told you i was a deer hunter right and mm-hmm. so you know as as uh, we all know, it's not that easy to kill a mature deer, um, you know. And so there was a series of articles. That was one of the ones that I've written over the over time that uh, had to do with basically understanding deer movements. What are they doing, right? I mean, like from a deer hunter's perspective, it's hard to figure them out. Sometimes it's easy, but, you know, for the most part, it's not it's not a silver bullet that you can just figure out what deer do. You can't, you can't just predict it even when you think it's going to happen. Um, so going a little bit further back, um, we are a science-based, uh, organization. We're a member-based organization. People join and you're an NDA member, but, um, we always promote science. We always promote like, what is the, what does the science say? Because, that is ironclad like if people have tested theories and they've proven or disproven it it's it's something that can be helpful both in management habitat management like dustin knows um but particularly when it comes to hunting and historically there was uh what we knew about what deer did and where they move came from what was known as radio collars you know they put a collar on a deer the first one that was ever put on a deer was probably in the 40s 50s uh, and uh, they used to try to triangulate the location of the deer using those antennas. I'm sure you've seen guys or gals do that before, and they get a fixture on it, and then they have to drive around and get another fixture, and they basically draw lines and say, where on the topo map, where do those lines intersect? And that's probably about where the deer is. Well, fast forward to only about a decade ago, probably 15 years ago, we got GPS collars, geoposition system collars we all know what gps units are and they basically took the technology that is in the like a cell phone you know there's a gps unit in there there's a camera in there Mm -hmm. um there's all kinds of uh uh, devices that can be figured and they put it on the deer's neck and so we went from having a triangulate with an antenna to knowing where a deer is standing within like a couple feet at any given time and once GPS units became more prevalent in research, they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the past 15 years, we've learned a ton. And so the first article I wrote was at one of our national conventions. It was a result of a, me giving a presentation. I gave a talk at, at one of our national conventions. Um, I don't remember what year that was, but it had to do with mature buck movements. Like where, where do the biggest bucks go? And I look, we, we broke down all the latest GPS research on mature bucks that we knew at the time, uh, you know, 
where do they spend their time in their home range? Uh, do they go outside their home range? What do they do at different times of year? And uh, that was really popular. I had like a line of people come up and want to talk to me. And Lindsey Thomas Jr., who you just mentioned, said, we need to write something for the magazine. You know, we need to, not everybody was at this convention. And so a few years later, same type of thought process happened. Um, we had a convention, uh, one of our national conventions. I gave a talk on excursions, like where do deer go when they leave their home range? Because that was a new thing. We didn't even know that existed before there was GPS collars. Mm -hmm. Just because the deer would leave and go somewhere and the poor researcher or graduate student was out there with the antenna would be like, well, the deer's not here anymore because <laughs> yeah. it's gone. Um, so we that was something we learned and I, I gave a talk on that. And then fast forward to this article that we're going to talk about uh, today on this podcast. We were having one of our national events and uh, it was 2020. So to date it, you know, to put a year on it. And I was thinking, how can I play off the 2020, you know, and I thought 20 biggest discoveries over the last initially was going to be the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I realized there was too much to do. There was too much research. So cut it down to a decade. <laughs> so to give you an idea of where that article came from was I gave a talk and, uh, you know, I, I knew I was going to end up writing something for our, our website or magazine as a, as an after uh, fact, just because of what, yeah, just because of what happened the first two times, but uh, we presented it, and it was I may not have had the, uh, the 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 volume of questions and interest as the first two, just because 2020 was so chaotic. But right, um, put it up, put it on the website, and uh, it's been a popular one. We get a lot of traffic from it, you know, and I think people, you know, like all four of us that want to learn about deer and what they're doing. Uh, there's science happening every year that teaches us a little more. And in fact, uh, I just attended a conference two weeks ago that there was a whole bunch of new research out, which which is cool. So like every year, there are students out there trying to figure this stuff out. And I don't know if we'll ever learn at all, to be honest with you. I mean, they're they're amazing creatures. So that was that was the background of the article. Well, and jumping right into it, and I agree because reading this article, it there's a lot of stuff that. Well, what you do is, at least what I do, is I read the article, I read whatever I'm reading in the in the article, and then I relate it to what I've seen with my deer right. that I've been after, <laughs> or deer that I've been after and then never seen again, or they disappeared after September 30th, or, you know, all these different right. things. And I read it and just go, okay, how could that have happened to him, or, or what, what did he do? So, we, yeah. like, like Matt said, there's 20 different... Um, things, I guess you'd call it, in this article. We would love to talk about all 20, but this would turn into a 15-hour podcast. So <laughs> I wrote down five, and I'm sure you two probably have other ones, but we're just going to pick some of these um, discoveries that you came or you wrote about and kind of break down each one a little more. The first one that I'm going to talk about um, conveniently number one is number one, which I actually I wrote these backwards. I went, I started at twenty and then went up, and one and two are the two of the ones that I wrote down. So yes, one and two are on there. But the first one is titled "Deer See in Slow Motion." Yeah, let's talk. Pretty about cool that. stuff. 
Yeah, this is uh, an actually fairly recent project. Um, it's five, maybe five years ago. Um, so it wasn't going back a decade or so. Um, out of the University of Georgia, U UGA has done some of the best deer physiology research. Um, there's some really great universities out there, but a lot of what we know about how deer see, you know, that they can't see blaze orange um, or how they hear, um, really has come from the researchers at University of Georgia. So this project in particular that I'm talking about is the continuation of some of that vision research that they've been doing for the last decade. And the researcher is a young woman, Erin Watson. Um, she basically tried to, to, to define what is called the flicker fusion rate. And so you all know, like when you go see a movie at the movie theater, you're watching something on the TV screen on Netflix or whatever, it's, it's a series of still shots, right? Like we've all seen the old film. In fact, you know, a bunch of the social media platforms have the, the uh, filter that you can apply that has that old film look to it. And it's a bunch of still shots. And so the flicker fusion rate, um, Aaron found, uh, deer actually can play that real faster they process it than we do the eye to brain you know the you know what they see the images and how quickly they go through is at a faster rate than a human eye to brain and so because of that it's almost like they have supersonic vision and that they they see things at a, their sensitivity to movement um, and how quickly they process the information is much faster than we do and if you've ever been hunting or or not but you've been interacting with a deer and it's almost like they have this sixth sense of they picked up something they picked up movement they picked up something it's because they're processing it so much faster than we do and one of the things that one of the neatest things about uh, Aaron's research was that she also found that it's the most sensitive at guess what dawn and dusk mm. and it's because of when they're the most active and it's also at that time is because the the amount of light that is at that time of deer at, at that time of day makes it so they can process those images um so much faster so uh that's when deer are up on their feet feeding if you're not a hunter you, you may not know that but deer are what's known as crepuscular they're up and they're up at dawn and dusk and that's when they're they're spending most of their time on their feet and it makes sense, you know, physiologically speaking, that they would process the information as fast as possible when they're when they're up and at risk of being killed. They're a prey animal, right? So they're they're trying to figure that out. So, and and the 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 rate at which she estimated is that it's four times more effective at that time of day than any other time. So, hmm. you know, what does that mean for us as hunters? Uh, you know, I don't know. Stop don't, trying. Don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I just don't. You know, if if you think it's, uh, you want to check your phone, you got a text while you're in the stand, or you want to look over in a certain direction because you heard, a, you know, a branch or something, uh, you know, move four times slower than you normally would, <laughs> I guess. I, I really don't know what that means, but like, just move darn slow because they, they can pick that stuff up. And what's crazy is you're not talking, obviously, like seconds. We're talking like nanoseconds, I would assume, of how fast they can pick yeah. it up. But that gives them, you know, that, like you said, that just a little bit quicker processing to, to react and to do 
break down what's happening yeah. that much faster, um, which is the difference for them possibly between life and death. Yeah, that's like the more I've hunted, you know, obviously camo is a popular thing for people and everybody pretty much wears it that hunts. Right. But I tell you, I've I've just learned that movement is what kills you more than what you've got on, right? I mean, you know, there's all these these people talking about, oh gosh, what is it? Ultraviolet um the clothes yeah. having I can't remember what they call it, purple or something from oh, whatever detergent you yeah. use and I know uh, what you're talking about. But man, like I think I almost feel like you could be out there wearing construction yellow from head to toe and if you're sitting still, it's better than if you're wearing the most perfect camo for that environment and and making movement it you know i've just just from what i've been told and what i've learned just hunting that well, movement's what kills you and and this is just kind of proof how many <laughs> if times, they see in slow motion how many times you're sitting out there and you know that old doe walks out and you barely move and she just picks you off immediately i mean she's just yeah you know ears perked head up and you're like there is absolutely no way mm-hmm. she's seen me move well Jokes on us. Yeah, she did. Yeah, you you know what it is too, uh, Andy, is that it is it is motion too because some of this other uh, vision research, what we've learned is they actually don't see their uh, what's called visual acuity, um, or basically like their focus, being able to really focus on something and see how see it with clarity is not that good. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost have a blurry image, mm-hmm. uh, you know in if you're going to look at that picture that I was talking about, that's playing in front of them, it, it's like the, it's pixelated. Gotcha. It's right. pixelated. It's like it's almost like they, so. What they're doing is seeing, and it's not only is it pixelated, but it has a band of of a little bit more definition because their eye, uh, their pupil is like a horse's pupil. It's a slit. It's not a circular circle uh, pupil like ours, and so they have this band. A horizontal band that is kind of like pixelated much less clear than what we see and then above and below that like on the top of the horizon and below the horizon it's really blurry yeah um so they can't really see it's not like they have 2020 vision like you know we, we aspire to be unless you have uh they have like 2060 vision so they, they can see at about 60 feet what we see at 20 feet hmm. or okay. maybe i got that backwards but um so they, what they really do pick up is is motion, uh, and so just you could, you know, in terms of whatever camo you wear, or, or obviously scent control is important because they do smell so well, but just don't move. Yeah, <laughs> sit I always, still. Uh, especially we talk about the ground hunting and stuff a lot. Fred Bear's got the Ten Commandments of bow hunting, and two of those involve their senses, and one of them is. Your grandfather used to hunt deer in red plaid. You know, yeah. think about that. Just sit down and be quiet and don't move. And then you always want to camouflage, obviously, your scent, like you said, your sound and your appearance. So um, back to the fact that they rely on motion when you, you know, they say deer don't move in high wind situations. Well, they're still out there living. Yeah. But they're going to be. They got to. They're, they're where the cover is, where there's less movement in the trees and the vegetation because they're picking all that up. And if they can't pick off your movement to sense that danger, then they don't want to be where all yeah. the vegetation is like crazy. So. Yeah. Well, and we've all, like, been in a tree stand and 
had that young buck come right under our tree or that young doe come all the way under our tree and sit there and just move her head, yeah. you know, trying to look at you. She, she knows something's up there, can't figure it out, and they've got their head moving all these different directions. And if you just stand still, they can't they, – it's almost like they can't put that picture together like you were talking about, they, Matt, right? They, they can't figure out is there something up there that's a threat or am I just yeah. seeing part of the tree – and I've, I'm sure we've all done this, but if I've seen like a spike and, the, and it keeps, you know, staying under my tree for a while and doing that, I'll just go, hello, and <laughs> just kind of, hello. Yeah. And then it's like, oh gosh, yep, something's there. Well, now that you're uh, saying like you, they have that one band of clarity, it makes me wonder, you know, they're moving their head like that. Are they trying to get you in that band of clarity so they can see, like, I don't know, maybe yeah. not, but I'm thinking too much into it. But are they, are they trying to catch that focus to see what's there? Or, I mean. I, I think you're right. And I, you know, the reason that their pupil, I mean, this is theorized, the reason that the pupil is in a horizontal slit as opposed to a circular slit, and it is um, their, you know, their ability to see uh, certain wavelengths. You're talking about UV. There's, there's reasons behind that. It's because, like, at dawn and dusk, that's when those blues and UVs stand out the most, and that's when they're the most active. Uh, but the reason they're bobbing their head like that is they saw motion or and it's likely it was motion. They saw something and they're either trying to pick that back up, whether they're trying to get it in the band. They don't know where exactly it was, but they're just trying to do that. Or they may also be trying to like get you to move again. Um, right. Well, I think that's you know, what so the, like the alert with the uh, snorting and the stomping yeah they try to get a re, uh, reaction out of you to pick off that movement like you're saying part of that too is warning their uh other deer around mm-hmm. you know like because they are herd animals not right. only are they prey but they're herd animals so by doing that you know you've all seen it deer will be feeding and they might be feeding in the same direction you know their heads in the same direction but not necessarily when they bed they tend to not be facing each other you know they'll be looking in different directions and so Part of that is a um, a vocal alert to the other deer. Be like, hey, there's a danger in the area. I don't know you what know, it is up. yet, but I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, it, number one, deer seeing slow motion just, you know, made me think of a lot of things. Um, I do a pretty good job staying still in a tree stand, but, man, like the worst times. Like we've all been there and 60 yards behind you in the timber – where your wind is not a problem, all of a sudden you're getting blowed at because you stood up and turned around. And she was way back there. You can't even see her or it. Yeah. And you're just all of a sudden getting blowed at. And you're just like, well, I guess that's guess that's that for the day. I guess it saw me. Right. And you you can't see anything. You don't even know where they're at. You just hear them blowing at yeah. you um, and going the other way. And, and then you have those times where, like you said, you, you get lucky enough, they come underneath you. They're usually young and kind of stupid, and then they're just moving all over the place just trying to get you to move, and you make that one movement, and then they, they put the puzzle together. You can almost see that puzzle get finished, yeah. and then they're usually out of there. Sometimes they come right back. <laughs> but, yeah, deer, sleeing, deer see in slow motion. That was the first one. Wait. We, we uh, you know, as a jumping off from that, I, I won't go too long because I know we want to cover these other things, but we um, put on the NDA website last fall, so like just this past November, a vision 
infographic basically it included this the flicker fusion rate but a whole bunch of other stuff about how deer see because there's been a ton of research on it so it goes into um, uv wavelengths and clarity and um, all of the things there's some crazy cyclovergence which is a fa fancy word that says even when their head is down they can see you in a tree um, so if you're interested in how deer see i encourage your listeners to go check out that other infographic about deer vision nice okay you want to do number two or do you want to move to a different one you guys all in agreement we can go to number two you are what your grandparents ate this one is some like mind-blowing research stuff i mean when <laughs> this came out this is a little bit older than the one we just talked about um i got the article open here it says 2015 um this was from mississippi state you know, I'm throwing big biologist words out occasionally. I apologize in, in advance, but this is this is about a phenomenon called epigenetics. And okay. epigenetics is not unique to just deer. Um, epigenetics in uh, is in other wild animals. It's even in somewhat in humans. Uh, really, what it means is you're a product of your environment to a, to a degree. And when we talk, talk about habitat, I know Dustin's probably read this and thinking about some of this oh, yeah. what they did in this study was they wanted to know is a deer a deer everywhere like we've all heard those stories about oh well that's a great deer from my area or you know and just qualifying it for oh well that's you know that's from that other part of the state and they don't have good soils or they don't have good uh, food or they don't have good cover you know, perfect example. So where I'm calling in from New York state, we have an agri rich region, which some of the biggest bucks come out of uh, around the Finger Lakes and out in the Western part of the state. Mm -hmm. I don't live in that area. I live <laughs> in a mountainous area, uh, just on the foothills of the Adirondacks. Adirondacks are huge peaks, you know, three, 4,000 foot peaks. The deer are definitely different size where I live, you, where you guys are, the Ozarks compared to northern Missouri mm -hmm. you know you can pick any state and do the same thing but what they did this researcher Eric, Dr. Eric Michael um, with Mississippi State they wanted to know are whitetails doomed from where they were born like is that is it a, is it a effect of where they were truly a product of their environment or not and so what they did was they took pregnant does from three different regions of the state of Mississippi. Um, and they've, I, I think have since this project came out, have tested this in other places in other states and it held true, but basically a really poor soil area place that doesn't have a lot of agriculture. There's not a lot of land uh, use in ag from a medium part of the state. And then like a place that's just bang up, you know, there's corn and soybeans everywhere. It's just lots of food. And, historically and the data shows that like you know decades of harvest data looking at it the average bucks from the best high quality area are certainly bigger antlered and bigger body than you know compared to those other two places but what they did was they took wild does that were pregnant captured captured them um, let them give birth to fawns took those fawns uh and raised them for uh a, you know a couple years of their life had them have fawns and they did this for a couple generations the entire time they fed all of these deer 
a super high quality diet, you know, one that would reflect the deer from the best region and just wanted to know, will the ones from the poor soil region ever catch up? And you know what the answer was? Uh, they did. And in fact, really? in some cases surpassed, but it took two generations at least for it to happen. Meaning there's an effect, a genetic effect. This is kind of like mind blowing stuff where even if you took a pregnant doe from the best soil region, I mean, sorry, the worst soil region, she has a fawn, a buck fawn. You give that buck fawn three, four, five, six years to reach maturity. He's eating great food the whole time. He still is not going to produce antlers that are equal to some of those better soils. He impregnates a doe. They have a fawn, a buck fawn. That one is still different in size. And by the time you get to another generation, that's erased. And what they found was hmm. uh, through epigenetics that in addition to the environment a buck experienced during his life, the habitat quality experienced by his parents and his grandparents is also critically important. There's that lag effect. Um, so what's the advantage? Why would that, why would that happen? Um, it's probably th there's that lag effect because um, you guys know that like, ha you know, on a landscape scale, habitat doesn't change overnight. Right. Right. I mean, it's not like the best place of Missouri where there's not, not much forest, but there's lots of corn and soybeans. It's not a year to year thing that there's little of it, a lot of it. It's almost always a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, there might be times where there's a drought and it can't, can't be produced. And so it protects them from that. But this phenomenon keeps animals from growing larger in a particularly good year, only to be hurt when the forage quality returns to normal. I mean, that's basically why it's theorized that it happens. But how crazy is that? One of the cool things though, um, was that they found was that after they fed them over these times, uh, the buck fawns after two generations actually equaled or surpassed some of the wild bucks that were their lineage originally came from the best areas. And so again, talking about Missouri, you could have literally like, you know, a, a Boone and Crockett trophy buck give birth, birth not him give birth but obviously in pregnant doe uh, they they have a fawn a buck fawn um two generations go by and on average that buck could still be smaller than the ones that are coming out of the ozarks if given the right habitat habitat management works it just takes time to work that's all dustin just grinned about big. that yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> plug dustin williams they got like in the grand scheme of things even though it takes a couple generations that's really not that much time and it I, no, I, it got my wheels turning because you probably know the answer to this. Is a buck uh, able to produce viable semen at one and a half at the earliest? So yes, it, okay. So a yearling buck won't. But so I went. Well, to, let me say, let me qualify that. Fawns or year, some folks call them yearlings, but fawns, ones that are six month old buck or does, uh, they can actually become sexually mature at six months but it has to do with their weight, believe it or not, not their age. Okay. Um, it's not like humans where you hit your teens and you become sexually mature uh, for 
uh, I think if I have these numbers right, um, the average uh, buck fawn, if they hit about 80, or maybe it's doe, doe fawn, if they hit about 80 pounds live weight, they become sexually mature. And for buck fawns, I think it's 85 pounds, but it varies depending on the state. That's an ad, like a real broad average across the country. Mm-hmm. So it's going to vary based on where you are. But if your habitat's really rocking, uh, you're going to have fawns breeding a lot, you know, more. at six months of age. Yeah. yeah. Those button bucks might actually have viable semen. On my way to the project earlier this week that I'm actually on my way home from right now, but they sent me a trail cam picture of a yearling mounting a doe. And it was after Nate sent me the article that we're talking about today. And that it, mm. I was like, well, you could have that buck when he meets that mature age of five and a half to six and a half that a lot of guys are looking for already as a grandfather with this possible epigenetics happening you know say you did a you had a full-scale version of what i'm doing right now where a whole crew came and did tsi on your whole property yeah by the time that buck's fawns reach that age they could be a whole different class of animal simply because of the work that you've done and think of it the other way around if you're really doing consistent habitat management um you were buffered for a couple of years. Like if you, if you have like a long history of working on your ground Mm -hmm. to make it better, good food, good cover, it's constantly there. Your neighbors are doing it. Um, you know, even if you're in a quote unquote poor part of the state, but you're providing within, you know, several hundred acres, lots of good food and cover. You could have one of those years where stuff just doesn't grow well or whatever. Um, it's not going to decline quickly. You got, you know, you got a nice buffer zone there. So habitat management works. Genetics are um, part of this, but uh, they truly are a product of their environment. You know, deer are, if you feed them, it'll work. That's why I've always been like really impressed with some of the world-class deer that come out of areas that are not considered world-class. Like, even in Missouri, the southern part of our state is considered not as good quality of deer as the northern part of our state. The northern part of our state has better food, more for them, you know, to eat. Yeah. So, it's it to me, it's always, like, really, really cool when you get that 190-inch buck that weighs 125 pounds, but he's just got this freak thing, you know, on his head, and you're like... How did that grow on that? <laughs> you know, and I know genetics has a lot to do with it. And you're just like, yeah, but what did his, what did his father look like and that grandfather? You know, you didn't hear of them being that big. What caused yeah. that deer to become what it is now? And it could be very well because some farmer in that area started doing stuff five years ago and the grandfather been benefited and then the, and then the, the mother or father and now that deer is all of a sudden benefiting from that work five years ago but it's always been interesting and don't forget we get 50 percent of our genetics from moms right so uh you know that mississippi state deer lab that we were just talking about they had um just talking to some of the researchers and and understanding uh you know some of the work that's been done there um they, you know, all these research. I worked in college at a at a deer lab as well. It was out of um, New Hampshire, up up 
in the northeast here but you know we had captive uh deer that were used for studies similar to this and we had um we had does that are, were in their teens that were still given birth and we can talk about some of those things if we have time but that mississippi state deer lab they had uh one doe looking at genetics that she wasn't a very big doe i mean she was i think uh, you know moderate sized but she produced more boone and crockett bucks within their research facility than any other buck or doe that they could attribute to so she would give birth and if it was a if it was a buck fawn it had a very good shot at becoming a really big antler deer so there was something in her genetics that caused when she gave birth to a male to be a big antlered male it didn't matter if they bred her with a big buck or a little, little buck she just pretty consistently produced big bucks mm. and uh you can't tell what the genetics of a doe looks like i said i'm gonna I tell mean, you honestly that terrifies me because <laughs> <laughs> you always like i don't and probably think we'll talk about this a little bit later you shoot a doe and you're like oh my gosh but she's the know, next boone and crockett producer I, I try to take a few does you know and try to, to manage my herd size and I'm always like, oh, I want to make sure I shoot the right one. What if that one's break? Because here, this year's the first year different Missouri. Yeah. But it, the doe season's after the rut. And I'm always yeah. terrified, like, okay, which one did the big one breed? And then also, which one is carrying the genetics? So it's There's a, no way. There's no way to you know with the doe. You can't, you can't tell. You can't tell, like, you know, what we were just talking about. And you about. did, you did free, have that freak out moment when um, you, me, and Chase – Yeah. So my son and Andy actually both killed a doe within five minutes of each other. Um, my son's actually ended up being a button buck, but what we thought was a doe. And then Andy shot a doe shortly after that, and she was big. She she picked us off in the stand, and it was one of those smart ones. I was like, I'm tired of you, you picking she, me off every time. She I blows. Go. She goes. But when, like when we got up to her, we're like, okay, she is a mature. Yeah. Like this is a mature doe, and you could almost see Andy's like freak out factor start increasing it, on it's his anxiety face. Anxiety like, because you don't know she's got the next boner. Inside. I have. A, I I know for a <laughs> fact on my property I have a doe, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same one. She has twin bucks every year. For three years, I've had twin bucks on that. I mean, but, this same property. It could be a different doe. I realize, but in my mind, there's no, no, one. There's one golden child out there, and I'm going to mess up and shoot her. But the chances of those two whatever. bucks staying on your property, right? Which we'll right. talk about later, right? I think in, uh, well, yeah, I guess vacations probably. or coaling, maybe. But um, I was just going to say, but though. If they're buck fawns, there's a high likelihood that they're leaving because yeah. they disperse, they go somewhere else. But, yeah. So I just get so anxiety Nate, every time. Nate already read my mind. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you because I, I, I could see that happen when you were like, well, actually, with both deer when we even when we walked up on Chase's deer, which was my son's first deer last year, and we're like, oh, that's a button buck, and you could almost see Andy go, damn it. <laughs> well, he'll never be uh, a booner. Uh, I'll tell you what, Andy. It's more important to to remove them yeah. because the more males, the less food for the ones that are out there, and it is more important to do the habitat work. Honestly, the bigger bang for your buck is to once you have an adult buck there, they have already dispersed, so they're yours to grow. Yeah. Anything with antlers, that there's they're not going anywhere. Um, your neighbor might kill him. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you got to think about. But, <laughs> Every uh, year. Thumb in the sore yeah, spot. Yeah. Yeah. You, that might happen. So that's something you can worry about. But 
uh, any button buck being something that would you'd be able to hunt, that's not going to happen. And shooting a doe, that's right. going to be the next booner producer. You can't really control that. Yeah. So, but you can. Things you need to think about. You can worry about it, Matt. And that's what Andy does. Well, and again, <laughs> the good thing this year makes me feel a little more comfortable because I, I always tell myself I have to get rid of some does. My herd is too big. And I think Nate yeah. will test where I'm at. I mean, I, I have an issue. Uh, you got a lot of deer. But it's always after the rut. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know which one. You know, I, I, to my, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to screw up and shoot the wrong does. And then, you know, but – this year being beforehand, I'm a lot more comfortable, I feel like, as of right now anyway, going ahead and calling, I don't say calling, but taking some does out of my herd prior to the rut. Cause they're so not I'm, kind of, I'm kind of excited for it to be in front of the rut. That's good. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, you want to be ready to move on to the next yeah, one? Yeah, let's get more. more. Yeah, All right. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, boys, but number four on the list antler size matters yeah this was cool too i i, I kind of uh, wanted to say up front yeah no shit <laughs> but yeah. there's more to it than just what that statement is up front so yeah. that's why i wanted let, to say that let, listen to this study this is this is like some uh you know mad scientist came up with a project and they decided <laughs> that da- daniel marina was the researcher again this was another mississippi state university deer lab a project in 2018 um they what they did was they had breeding pens so again this is a captive deer herd so it's uh not in the wild but they were able to um segregate um does that were in heat into a center pen that allowed them to basically choose between bucks based on who was flanking them, you know, the, the bucks that were in pens on either side. And she had the ability to basically uh, make a choice between those two options. And so they, Daniel and his co-authors uh, removed the antlers, the hard antlers off the deer. They cut them off with like, they sedated the deer, cut them off. You know, we all know that, that once the antlers harden, it doesn't hurt a deer. So if that's right. something your listeners are thinking to, they were able to cut them off and then fasten a device on the bottom of all the antlers and then talk about like mad scientists and like messing with your head. They change the antlers between individuals. <laughs> and so they would put, you know, a buck that was five and a half years old, nearly 275 live weight and put little dinky antlers on his head. How did and they then stay? They take, gorilla glue. Well, it, so yeah, gorilla glue, <laughs> duct tape. Uh, no, they had this cool. They used the, uh, the Daniel gave a presentation at the same conference that I was just talking to uh, that I was at a few weeks ago. And I remember seeing the pictures in his presentation and poster. They they worked with the like engineering department or the students in the in the mechanical engineering department, and they created these aluminum. They had to paint them so they made them antler color, but they they made these like cup cufflings or not cufflings, but like these like uh, these circular uh, male female parts that they were able to um use allen wrench screws and like drill it into the base of the antler and they left a stub of the pedicle and then drill uh, you know another one of the female part into the pedicle huh. and so they could easily just interchange the antlers and it had like a three-quarter inch um deep metal 
ring all around the bottom mm-hmm. so you could see it and then they i think maybe what they did was they they literally put like flesh colored tape around it mm-hmm. you know maybe adhesive tape or something like that to make it look like it was part of the antler but yeah so they would they would take a one and a half year old yearling what we call yearlings buck uh that was you know probably a forker or something like that and they put 160 antlers on them and then they did this experiment. They ran it over and over and over again, varying the different sizes, um, different ages. They would compare different uh, same age classes and weights, but then they would mix it up. Um, and once he introduced the dozen heat into the pen, beside the pens of her two options, bucks with either larger or smaller antlers, amazingly, does picked bucks. And as Nate said, duh, 90% of the time, <laughs> That had bigger antlers. Wow. And so really? it didn't matter the age or weight or anything. They always looked for antler size. <laughs> That's a, huh. What's the, I forgot it. I learned it in school, but the term for like what a peacock does where it's a disadvantage for them to carry that, but a female perceives it as that's a strong individual. Like I don't know. Nate pe- Thomasing? Peacocking. <laughs> your weight. Just peacocking. I'm a, I'm a peacock captain. You got to let me fly. <laughs> That's what I figured. Like, I, I don't. I don't know. I wonder uh, if it has to do with just perceived hindrance, but being able to survive with carrying that on your head. Well, and yeah. I mean, I, I'm. I'm sure it has something to do with mate selection and right. that huh. bigger. You know, what are antlers used for? Uh, antlers are used for to, for defend and displaying. Basically, they do it to to fight each other but also to display like you're talking about with peacock like peacock or whatever whatever animal you pick and so part of it is for posturing to other bucks to show them who's dominant but part of it is apparently to show off to the ladies and say look how big my antlers are so if that's the case could it be assumed in the wild that bigger bucks breed more does or is there more that goes into that i guess (laughs) There's more that goes into that, and we can so you know to answer that. There's some, been some really cool research done on uh, using DNA sequencing and figuring that out. There's it's not like a again no silver bullet, and it's always it it depends answer. Um, te- Texas A&M Kingsville has done some amazing research. That I think one of the projects that we may get to tonight, maybe not, but. Um, has had to do with like looking at some of the DNA sequencing and what bucks bred the most. Um, one of the projects that I talk about in this article has to do with no matter even if you have a good age structure and there's mature bucks around, even if that exists in some of the best states and herds in the country, about a third of the breeding is occurring from one and two year old bucks. So even in your best counties in Missouri, that produce the most Boone and Crocker bucks, there's a bunch of one and two-year-olds. Up to a third of them are still contributing to the DNA of the breeding in those counties. Um, some people think of that as, damn, that sucks. Mm-hmm. But honestly, those bucks might be Boone and Crockett's too. They just haven't they just expressed have it. They, ha- they haven't reached that age. What do you think so, about like how long it takes sometimes a buck to breed a doe? You know, they lock her down. They keep her away from everybody else. Like That could be a day, days-long process process yeah well those are days long where that 190 inch deer whatever is not doing anything else those one and two year olds are in there all right 
you know, like, yeah, I'll never forget, um, that deer right there that I killed in 2020. He had a doe pinned in a small little thicket of timber and I had to wait for him. And the entire time, this young buck was just outside pacing. As soon yeah. as he came out, waiting, waiting, waiting. as yeah. soon as he came out and I shot him, that young buck immediately took the opportunity to try to mount her right in front of me. Like, I yeah. was almost more concerned with that than trying to watch him go down. It was so interesting. And that's generally how that stuff happens is opportunistically. Yeah. They will, will zoom in. And it was um, the were, second that guy went hit the ground, he was right right at her, right? And it was uh it was just really interesting. So But Andy, to take that even further though, I mean, some of the studies that have had DNA and can sequence like entire um genomes of like herds and be able to say they find a deadhead they can say who who you know what are the genes of this who produced this deer mm -hmm. they find a shed antler uh deer obviously that are killed by hunters and brought in and they over the one one of these projects that they did this for like over a decade um they had some like some of their biggest antler deer and they could never find any contributions to, at least in bucks uh from those deer like meaning they may have been non-breeders. They may have never successfully, or they gave birth to, or you know, they impregnated a doe. Doe gave birth, and every single time, it left. those buck fawns were killed, but unlikely. And so, there's some theory. This is theory that some of the biggest antlered bucks are like that in some places because they're non-breeders. They don't compete during the rut. Like others oh, do, so which they don't get they're, worn they're, down. Not only well, not, do not they visible. don't get worn they're down, they're not visible. Shot. Yeah, exactly. So they get they're older. Just, they're just it deer instead of buck deer. Yeah. You know, they're just hanging out in the cover that and Dustin created. Yep. Yeah, doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah. um, they're just they're just hanging out, and they never they never go running around looking for does, yeah. huh. and so they don't they don't come at risk of getting shot. Well, and this, this part of the article made me also think about that age-old question, does a buck know what he has? Like, does he know what he is, what's on his head? You know, you, you see them go under fences sometimes, and they know what's there. Yep. But do they know they're huge? They do. Like, do they know they're 180-inch uh, deer? Do they know how big they actually are? I've always, I, I, you know, pondered that. Some of the Georgia stuff that came out earlier was they do know what they have because of when antlers are in velvet – and they're full of nerves. They have a sense of the three-dimensional stuff oh. that's going on up there, which gives them a like a almost like having muscle memory of you know drawing your bow back or you know you do something over and over again. They have the ability to know how big of a space that takes up. Mm -hmm. They might not know if they're a twelve-pointer or eight-pointer or whatever, but they generally know that they're probably getting bigger every year. Yeah, and you know, with maturity and bigger weight and bigger muscle uh, and bigger uh, skeletal uh, structure, they're badass. And they can, they, they do know that. I think that's where the dominance comes in is antler size, their weight, they're looking down on other deer. You know, there's, there's a whole yeah. bunch to it. <laughs> check and, out, and check out this sick, sick kicker, bro. I keep picturing <laughs> now these little one and a half year old deer they did this study on. They screwed in these Could barely walk inch. around. He's very, all of a sudden he has these little ants. <laughs> now he's to walk around like Joe Cool because he got. His, uh, his neck muscles have to get really strong really fast. 
<laughs> but what a, uh, what a cool study though huh? yeah that's crazy that's awesome. Th- think about that well and even cooler is uh the next the next part of your uh, article which is the one i'm most looking forward to out of all of them is number 12 deer go on vacation which pisses me yeah. off but anyway deer go on vacation yeah so th- this this was deer excursions which i mentioned at the top of the podcast um we didn't even know these things happened before 2010, really, because of that triangulation, you know, with the radio collars. Uh, basically, excursions are, let me define that first for the for the audience. So deer live within what we call a home range. That's where they are 95% of the time, uh, 95 to 100% of the time, meaning if you drew a circle uh, on all the places that particular deer, buck or doe would be, uh, you got to pretty good chance of finding them in that circle um their core area if you've ever heard that term is where they are 50 percent of the time i think of it as their bedroom meaning there's a 50 50 shot usually their core area is only about 10 to 15 percent of their home range it moves around the core area is not always the same spot it depends on the season uh, depends on habitat management depends on hunting pressure all kinds of stuff but they only spend about 50 percent of their time on about 10 to 15% of where they will be normally. Okay, now that we defined all that, to blow your mind, they leave all of that. <laughs> they they will leave, even though they, as deer get older, they their home range shrinks because they get more comfortable with where the places are their safest. It's called site fidelity. But even though that happens, both bucks and does, it's heavier on the buck side, and it's not seasonal dependent. More of it happens during the rut than outside, but it can happen in the summer. It can happen in the spring. Deer will do what we call an excursion, which means they go on this jaunt that is well outside of the home range. That circle that you drew, it averages about one to two miles away. They've been known to go pretty darn far. And I'm going to give you an example from Missouri, which is one of the longest that we've ever think has happened. Um, but they'll go you know, a mile or two away, um, it lasts about a day, but they can last days. Um, it could be several days and about 50% of bucks do it. It, it doesn't matter the age. Um, and the ones that do, do go of, you know, the, the half of bucks, if you just had 50% of all bucks do this, um, about half of them, uh, go more than once. It's not like a one-time thing. It's almost like, okay, I, I, I'm going to look for something. We're not really sure what it is, but they, they go, a lot of it is breeding related, but it's not a hundred percent because it occurs in the spring and summer too. Um, some people think it's related to deer going back to where they were born. That's what I've heard. Um, yeah. yeah. Some deer definitely have, um, it's, per, it's proposed that it's up to 25% of all deer have what's called a dumbbell shaped home range, meaning, there's this blob over here where they spend part of the year and there's a blob over here where they spend some of the year and they can be found in either place depending on what time of year i can tell you some crazy examples of deer that on the same day they would go from one to the other and spend like they might be three miles apart they'll spend it spring and summer over here three miles apart they go over there and they're over there. i mean you guys probably know that that's true like even though you haven't seen it and don't have a collar on deer mm-hmm. so both of the both of those things true and and there's some deer that have those dumbbell home ranges but even they go on excursions they leave where they are 
in a random chaotic distance that they just go somewhere. And so when we first discovered this, you know, in 2010, we're talking about over 10 years ago at this point, um, it immediately hit a lot of people like, oh, okay, those times I'm on stand and I catch a glimpse at a buck, uh, never seen him before. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time I seen him or got a trail camera picture of a buck, never seen him before. Uh, where'd he go? And you go hunt it hard and you never see that deer. Or of course, this is where I'm sure Andy's already thinking, uh, you have a deer on camera and somebody shoots him a mile or two away and he had been spending every day an hour on your place. You can't control excursions unless you put a fence up and that's not fair chase anymore. You know, they happen. And I wrote in, in the talk I gave about specifically about excursions, like, you know, explicit happens, you know, the, the explicit that I'm, I'm thinking, well, excursions happen too. They happen. You can't stop it. Yeah. It sucks, but it yeah. it's part, partly to do with, uh, dispersing those genes we were talking about earlier. Um, but it's, it's interesting, you know, and both bucks and does do it. Um, one research project out of Tennessee had collars on bucks and does. They documented the first ever, uh, deer booty call because they had a buck <laughs> buck leave its home range and a doe leave her home range on excursions they met up in the middle of the night hung out for about 15 hours and then they both went back to their places that's funny <laughs> that's good do you think that's part of it too is like obviously it could be breeding related these these vacations they go on or whatever yeah do they think part of it could just be general curiosity as a as an animal like I'm bored. I want to go check stuff out. Or obviously you can't talk to a deer and find out why. Or, yeah. But Are there excursions generally to the same areas year after year? Uh, that's a good question. So there was a study done out of Illinois, Southern Illinois University um, at Carbondale. They had collars on younger bucks, not mm-hmm. mature bucks. Mm-hmm. And um, they found uh, that there were – some overlap between when a deer would go on an excursion and when they eventually dispersed that the direction was similar. Okay. Hmm. Meaning it was almost like they were testing out where they were going to end up setting up shop. Right. Um, but from the, from the majority of the research that I've seen, this stuff has been done all over the country. This is not unique to a specific part of the U S or North America, you know, Eastern shore, Maryland, Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, you know, Missouri has done has done a bunch of work. Michigan, I mean, Pennsylvania does some great work out of Pennsylvania. They've all documented this stuff. None of them have really shown a consistency in terms of what direction. Um, you know, one study out of Pen- this Pennsylvania study I just mentioned, they had two deer. They were does. They were had home ranges that were five miles apart. They both made excursions to the same location, <laughs> so it was almost like. I don't know. Maybe they came from. I I don't know. There was th- theories that it was potentially related to resource need, like they were going to mineral sites or they mm-hmm. were going to where the food was or the winter was bad. That one case, though, that I was telling you, you know, even though the average deer that goes on these is only a mile or two away, they've gone dozens of miles, uh, and in one case. Uh, uh, in Missouri, there was a three and a half year old buck that went on an excursion. Uh, there's an article on our website specifically about this deer 
it got picked up by a lot of the media too. Um, and it's been on other outdoor platforms, but there was a three and a half year old buck that went from the, I think it was the KC area and ended up traveling 130 miles. Oh yeah. Um, it, it, did it go North? North and, and East. I'm pretty sure it crossed the Missouri river. It remember, did. Do you remember hearing that one? Yeah. 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 yeah I know what you're talking about now. A freaking deer crossed the Missouri river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, yeah, just, I remember reading. He about just that. like set up and just started going. Yeah, but he hadn't. You know, I know maybe they didn't have him collared at two, and he ended up dying at the hundred and thirty eighth mile or something like that. Huh. That's really abnormal. Yeah, something tells me there was something wrong with that he deer. Crossed a bunch of highways. Going. Yeah, I was thinking it. I just started walking. <laughs> I was walking. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. Tired now. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I told you too. Like we know where they are to the, you know, to the meter almost because of these GPS colors. They have that buck. Although I think there's, I said maybe there was something wrong with him. He wasn't dumb, because if you if you go look at the article on our website, um, he would he would stop every night and find these little patches of cover and just stay in there during daylight hours, and then the next next day start moving hmm. and uh uh you can see these little like little woodlots in the middle of ag country i think he set up shop next to like literally like a mall or something at some point <laughs> you know it, uh, like he wasn't he he wasn't uh he didn't lose his faculties he right. knew how to survive what he was doing so i don't think he was diseased or mentally he just started walking hmm. I don't huh. know. that's crazy well and your guys' articles on deer movement, especially this one, both have, you know, given me, uh, like, made me understand more and know when things aren't good for you. Right. I mean, so I think all all three of us and probably even Dustin do this. Uh, I, I nickname my deer, and then I will keep a journal of, like, every time that deer shows up on trail camera, every mm-hmm. time I see them, I will write down, you know, the date, the time which way they were coming from or which way they were walking to just all that stuff. Right. And I've gotten to where now I want to start doing the, the weather, but originally I didn't do that. Right. But this one particular deer, you know, which one I'm talking about. The one he's not coming back. He's not coming back. You know, this deer literally like five pictures a day on camera, just every single day in September. And then somewhere around like the end of September, September 30th, gone never seen again and reading your guys's articles i know exactly why his core mm-hmm. area that farm was part of that core area but not the 50 percent or the bedroom like you talk about and yeah. for breeding season he left and either got killed or something happened to him or he moved off somewhere else to altogether but it's just when you when you see those changes reading your guys's articles has really educated a guy like me to go I'm screwed. Like I'm never going to see him again. You you kind of understand what's happening to you almost. You know. Well, well, I mean, you know, to to counter that to a degree, and I don't mean to counter you, but you know, the the same thing with the core area. I remember Do not I told give him you hope. Like ten- <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying there's a chance? There's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the core area. I told you it was like ten to fifteen percent of a, a buck's home range. On average, those are a lot smaller than people think. Mm-hmm. In the summer, they're really small, but that's when their home range is the smallest anyway. Their home range expands during 
in the breeding season. But like if a if a buck's home range is like five six hundred acres, and you're talking about ten percent of that, you know, you're talking about fifty acres. Yeah. And so you can do the really good job working on habitat. And if a deer likes living there, that might be a part of their core area. Even if you don't own forty acres, if you own, uh, you know, twenty, you might have the best core area now you're not going to support a dozen bucks on that but you are providing something and if you do work with your neighbors and they're doing similar efforts um it creates a landscape effect but yeah yeah i I was just really interested in that one deer go on vacation just honestly deer movement in general is really interesting to me it explains why i mean i had that one buck and it's happened to multiple people but i had one buck i have two pictures of him one was july 3rd one was september 3rd Never seen him again, never seen him before. He was on an excursion. I'm guessing you said sometimes twice a year. It would make sense. Yeah. I mean, he left his home range, and I have a feeling I kind of know a general direction, but it's so hard to tell. I mean, but that explains why I only have two pictures of him. He was there for yeah. a day and gone. Yeah. That's, you know, that's why trail cameras are so awesome is that, like, you don't need a $3,000 um, GPS collar on a buck, you got enough cameras out there and you can kind of get a sense where your deer spends its time. And when they leave, <laughs> you know, like they're not around anymore. It'd be cool to have one of those though. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, you got anything to add to that, Dustin? No, I mean, I like when I listen to you guys, I'm glad I hunt public land cause I don't get attached <laughs> to any deer. But, Dude, you do. Yeah. Like, I mean, I nickname the damn things and it's <laughs> like, I, I want you, you know, and, it, it can be a bad, it can be a negative just as much as a positive. Right. You know. And I get yeah. a lot of, like, the guys that call me, they're like, well, I only have 40 acres or I only have 20 or 10 or 50 or whatever it is. I'm like, well, you, the best thing that you can do is make that chunk as good as you can because you know that deer mm-hmm. are going to move through it, especially in the rut. They might, I don't know if they have the cognizant or the cognitive ability to just going through there be like, ooh, I remember seeing this patch of habitat mm-hmm. you know maybe they get pressured somewhere else and they know that they can go back to that on these excursions it's just another option yeah yeah as the landscape keeps getting fragmented you know build what you have and then it'll be good at least as long as it's yours you know can so. only work with what you got yep. yep yep yeah yep so that's number 12 deer go on vacation um and then last but not least at least on my list no, so I want to hear this one, yeah. Number 20, because this is a – it almost is always an argument between people. Coaling does not work. Yeah. So this was a project out of Texas. Um, Donnie Drager was the researcher, uh, the main author, and some of the co-authors. They wanted to really understand long-term because culling is not something that happens overnight, Right does it work or does it not and they said we need a big project site so they took a hundred thousand acre scale chunk of one of the bigger um ranches down there i don't remember which one of i used to know the name but i forgot off the top of my head it's not king ranch i don't think it may have been uh faith but anyway it's it's one of the big ranches wasn't wasn't it the ranch where that guy poached all the deer at some point or was that the different the other one i don't think so no this one's highly highly uh researched and other things so um but they took a hundred thousand acres and they said we need to do this for at least a decade and so for 10 years 
they had three study units within that 100,000 acres and they replicated it. So it wasn't like they had even division between 100,000 acres and had three chunks. They, they had parts of that that was broken up and they replicated it. So they did this over and over and over in that 100,000 acres. And they set up three different defined areas, <clears throat> intensive culling, moderate culling, and a control, which means they didn't do anything to it. All of these areas had similar habitat characteristics you know same quality i mean it's south texas so it was it was all basically homogenous mm -hmm. and the intensive uh the intensive level of culling uh involved a a level of removing deer that you or i would not even be able to afford or think about <laughs> meaning not only was it done through hunting mm -hmm. but they basically fooled you know, you've seen those videos where they fly helicopters and shoot hogs. They did that with deer. <laughs> they were shooting deer. If they didn't meet a certain quality, they removed them by age class. It wasn't just had to have so many points, but they had a certain culling criteria for two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. Um, and they had tags on deer. And so they're the ear tags. So they knew the age. They were able to say, there's deer number 587. He's this year, this age. He doesn't meet the criteria. He's either gone or not. And they did that through various means, including helicopters, <laughs> um, spotlighting, all kinds of crazy stuff. The moderate one was basically applied through hunter, hunter removal, which is what would be a normal situation if somebody was trying to do it. And then the, the control, they didn't remove any deer. Um, the last seven of the 10 years, bucks that were captured in the intensive area, oh yeah, they even captured them and did not meet their calling criteria. They just, you know, they would actually capture them once a year to put new tags on them or put new collars on them. And they'd actually euthanize deer. Um, so seven of the 10 years, they actually had euthanasia to the deer because those deer didn't meet it. So this is like above and beyond what anybody would be able to extreme do. yeah mm -hmm. extreme um after all that time they saw no difference between any of the treatments uh the area that at a hundred thousand acre scale over a decade worth of that intensive breeding those deer were about the same size of the area that was the control and as the area of the moderate really? meaning so yeah, they they didn't see a difference in antler quality by age class at all. And so why is that? You know, going back to Andy's greatest fears that you can't tell <laughs> what the doe is carrying. I mean, it's got to be part of it because habitat was the same across all those. They, yeah. it, you know, we can't see DNA in 50% of the deer that are contributing to it. That's a big factor. There you go. And well, yeah, and even thinking back to the first topic too, like when you start playing into, yeah, you know what kind of habitat they have and stress factors and other stuff like that. There's so many things that go into what they produce and, outside and, of just genetics. Yeah, and, and you can't like you, even beyond looking at a doe, you can't also look at a buck and and determine whether or not he's going to throw a punitive buck if he sires one or a mm -hmm. big antler buck you can't like antler quality and size is a reflection more of environment like we talked about earlier in the podcast you know in the habitat 
than it is an age for sure. It, I mean, age is the number. Like, if you want to grow bigger antler deer, let them get older. That's what you have the most control over. Don't mm-hmm. shoot them when they're young. The second most important thing is nutrition. Genetics is the is is a part of it, but it's the thing we have the least control over. You don't have any control over genetics yeah. from either the buck or the doe side. You can't just look at a buck and say, "Oh, he's got to be siring." I mean. You know, guys, I'm like five seven. My brother's six one. We came from the same parents. <laughs> you know, it's a thing. Yeah. Well, it's a like, thing. like we said earlier, like that button buck that we accidentally shot. Well, not accidentally. My son shot it. Thought it was a doe. It was a button buck. It 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 doesn't really matter because he's going to leave and find a new yeah. home range, most likely. So you cull that young deer. That's Micah, by the way, Matt. You can wave at him. What's Micah up, Micah? walked in. <laughs> He's the one we fired. <laughs> you know, what's it doing? I mean, you you think about stuff like what you just said in genetics and even those those dinky deer could be the ones that are siring some monsters. Thinking about yeah. like a, a, a buck I had on one of my farms a couple of years ago, that evil Eddie deer. That was a 10-year-old just mainframe and G1s and nothing else. Looked goofier mm. than hell. But – he could have he could have been producing some of the biggest deer in that area. Yeah, he just himself was weird, Blind you know, for eyes, whatever reason. Around with a cane, with a with a thing on a growth on a jaw is just, yeah. you know, it's just interesting. And to me, understanding that culling doesn't work is mostly because you almost have no control over the environment that you're you're culling, especially us yes. people who are hunting uncontrolled areas like that ranch, even though mm-hmm. it was huge. I have no control over what my neighbor's doing or what they're choosing to shoot unless we can talk about it and, you know, come do a plan together. But, and just like you said, 50% of the deer are carrying the DNA that I'm having. I don't know. I can't do anything with them. Uh, What I tell hunters is, listen, I have kids. I had no say in whether they were boys or girls, (laughs) you know, right? Uh, there was no, it it was going to happen, whatever was going to happen, you know? And that is where people kind of clicks for them. Be like, oh yeah, like you don't have control over that. It's the roll of the dice. And so, what would make you think you can do that with deer? Yeah, yeah, you can't. It makes sense. You know, some of the other like management ideas that I've heard make more sense to me. If if you're attempting to grow big deer, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with them, but we have a friend of ours that has a property that he hunts that. He picks a deer that he wants to be the big one at three and a half, and he eliminates the competition, essentially. Like, he'll bring people in to kill the other ones and, you know, basically makes that one King King Kong, and he continues to get bigger the next, you know, four or five years old. And you think about, like, your properties you hunt. Mike has got a deer at one of his properties that's a giant asshole and just, you know, runs the place. Well... If that deer was gone, would a higher class deer maybe stay or move in? I guess that's possible, but even then, you don't really know if you're affecting you anything. And yeah, that's that's a form of culling, I guess. If you're deciding to take, let's say, a three and a half year old that's just super aggressive, or or whatever. But well, that's the same guy I think you're talking about. He also has people come. All eight points are fair game, but anything over eight, it's a no shoot. Like then he he culls from there and grows his, you know, ideal deer. 
it's like he's picking his prize fighters almost. Which you in know. that case, yeah, like no, said, I get that. I mean, you don't know which would, one's going to blow up the next year or what you know. I mean, there's been plenty of cases of deer that have gone from eight to more right. or less. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the average deer wants, or the average buck wants to grow eight points. Like if you looked at all the bucks in your state or your county, the vast majority are eight pointers. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a deer that is showing at three and a half that he's going to be a 10, um, you know, I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying that, but I mean, I'm not, I'm also saying that probably could work. Like if you identify a deer um, and you try to give it more food, however that's done, it's either doing the habitat work or removing other mouths, mm-hmm. box endos, um, and you don't shoot that deer, he's probably going to get bigger. And if he happens to be a 10 or 12 pointer at a younger age, it's probably going to be a pretty good indication that he's going to yeah. have a lot of points. I think that's so a lot it, of his, uh, what you, theory. his theory is I don't want him to leave. I want him yeah. to want to be here. And if I get rid of assholes or other competition, yeah. he's not going to go anywhere. He's cause he feeds them, you know, when it's legal yeah. to, um, yeah. he feeds them. They've got, he's got everything he wants here and he's got no competition. He will be, the six-year-old deer I'm able to kill in two years, uh, you know. I mean, and, like I just said, the things you have control over, he's actually manipulating the things you have control over. You don't of, have control yeah. over genetics, but I mean, yeah. that there's there's truth in that. And there's a lot of factors that go in to be able to do something like that. You got to have the big enough, a big enough farm, right. you know, the ability to do those things. I don't think I could do it <laughs> because I'd be the same guy like Andy, like that that three and a half year old, nice solid eight. Man, what is he next but year? What if he turns into a giant in two years and I'm getting rid of him? You know, um, that sort of stuff. So, um, those are just five of the topics on Matt's uh, article. The top twenty, the twenty biggest deer research discoveries of the last decade. So, for the listeners, why don't you tell them where they can go read this article? Um, what's cool about the article is you cite the the research studies in each of those the 20 things that you list so then people then can go try to find more information about those tell people how they can go read uh this article among other things with the national deer association that you put out our website is www.deerassociation.com all lowercase so if you just type that in um, probably the easiest way to find that article because it is a couple of years old is if you click on our menu, there's a little uh, searchable tool and you could probably just type in 20 biggest uh, discoveries or something along those lines. It would it would definitely find it if you type into the search menu. Um, it's likely under the uh, deer biology menu, but you probably have to scroll for a while to find it because we put out two new articles every week and it's, mm-hmm. you know, a couple years back from when that came out. So that's the easiest fi- way to find it. Um, you can find my contact information on the website. I'm a full-time staff uh, member and, you know, we list all our staff and our contact information. Um, feel free to re- reach out to me if, you know, a listener has a question about a deer that does some crazy stuff. I'm always happy to talk deer with folks. You know, I age jawbones through emails, um, all kinds of cool stuff for our members and supporters. And uh, if you're not already getting our newsletter, we have a, a, a e- newsletter, an email newsletter that has these new articles every week. Um, we don't sell your information or anything. 
Um, it comes out every Thursday. There's an option, I think it's on our homepage, to, to just put your email in and get our newsletter. So that I would encourage you to do it because actually the uh, conference that a bunch of this research came from that I've mentioned twice, um, there's going to be a new article coming out. Actually, there's one in this upcoming newsletter, which is tomorrow, um, about some of the data we learned there. And there's going to be a full-blown article like this one that we're talking about coming out soon about some of the, the latest stuff from this year. So that's where awesome. you can go. That's pretty awesome. And also, if you just go to Google and type in 20 biggest deer research and just stop there, it'll, it'll find the article. Um, All right. So that's good too. Easy ways to find <laughs> it. Uh, and we'll link the article also in our in our release. But um, that's just five of the topics of the 20. And it was hard to pick five, honestly. There was other ones I wanted. Right. But, you know. We we went an hour and twenty with you, Matt, and um, that was just five. So if we did all twenty, be a little bit longer than that. So we really appreciate your time tonight. Um, we uh, really appreciate everything the National Deer Association does, and all the researchers that are we talked about mm-hmm. in each of these things. Um, just to be able to understand, you know, an animal that we love to pursue a little bit better. So Matt, we appreciate your time and, and what you do for us. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the platform. Enjoyed speaking and talking deer with all four of you. I'm going to include Micah because he's he's there on the screen. He so. can't, and he can't even hear you, so you can yeah. say anything you want about him right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks, Have Matt. a good night. Thank you. See ya.